it's Tyson Yakapora from the Indigenous Knowledge Systems Lab at the Nikeri Institute at Deakin University. Um, at the Indigenous Knowledge Systems Lab, we we apply an Indigenous uh, complexity lens, um, working with Indigenous knowledge systems and the processes of patterns and um, structures and everything else of our culture to see how these things can be applied to um, solve some of the wicked problems in the world. So while usually our inquiry is not about describing aspects of uh, the Indigenous world as content to people, um, sometimes it can be handy, especially in the work we're looking at in cybernetics, um, uh, to examine some of the interesting things that arise in the Indigenous community as late adopters of um, some aspects of technology, uh, having a look at the, uh, the impacts of that technology on a late adopter community um, can often show some transferable insights, um, things that we may have overlooked uh, <laughs> that nobody had an eye on in, in the early days of um, uptake by technologies and platforms and things like this. Um, you know, in the earlier days of the internet. Uh, so what we're looking at today um, uh, in a project we're doing with um, with RMIT University, sponsored by Telstra, um, <clears throat> yeah, we're looking at a lot of um, um, aspects of this interaction with late adopter um, Indigenous communities um, of technologies to see if we can sort of shed some light on processes and innovations that could take place to um, make these things safer, more effective uh, for everybody. Now, uh, today we're particularly looking at um, uh, disinformation and misinformation. Um, you may not have heard very much out there about um, uh, the impact of uh, disinformation or misinformation, fake news, you know, on the indigenous communities uh, in whatever land you're from, um, but strangely enough, it's it's happening. It's uh, not the first thing that people think of, um, but in order to explore this uh, quite deeply, uh, we're talking today with Tina Ngata, uh, who is a, a Maori um, writer and activist and um, uh, very big in her community with her community work in, in New Zealand in the Maori community. Um, and we're talking to her about the rise of Maori MAGA. I'd like to acknowledge uh, Bunurong country where this podcast is recorded and the lands of all the Kulin peoples and all of the indigenous peoples uh, going out into the world where this uh, signal is running. So Tina, um, yeah, can you introduce you, yourself? Who, who's your mob? Where you're from? Um, yeah, what are you doing? Uh, yep, kia ora koutou. Uh, my name's Tina Ngata. Huri tēnei no Ngāti Pro, no te I come from uh, the Ngāti Pro people of the east coast of Te Ika Māori, uh, whose colonizer name is the North Island. Um, and I stay right on the Eastern Cape, um, which is quite a remote 
isolated part of the Ikamawi, and I work for my people. Uh, I do um, environmental work, so restoration plans for our forest estate and for our coastal marine esta estate, and I also do um, quite a bit of work around uh, colonial racism and environmental racism and trying to address that within our colonial structures at our regional level and at a national level and a little bit of work um, with our uh, Indigenous brothers and sisters at an international level along those same lines. Um, mm. Yeah, really nice to be here and greetings to all the brothers and sisters. Hey, well, you, uh, that's not all you do. You do a bit of writing from time to time, am I right? Yep, yeah, yeah. I, I've uh, published a book around colonial fictions called Kiamo, Resisting Colonial Fictions, and um, and I have a, a blog, uh, which you can access through my website, tinangata.com, um, and I write for a few publications, yeah, from time to time. Got to have some weird event, mm, right? That's it. You got to yeah. vent. <laughs> got to vent. Got to let it out or it gets all toxic. <laughs> well, look, um, the piece that I'm particularly interested in that you wrote was the the rise of Maori Maiga. Mm. The rise of Maori Maiga. Um, yeah, this is very interesting. Um, you know, we're actually uh, looking in this podcast out of RMIT. We're looking at uh, um, we're looking at disinformation online for this episode. So we're we're looking at the way you know our people get can get radicalized online the same way as anyone else and there's not very much out there about it it's nobody's speaking about it i think it makes people feel uncomfortable um you know i mean there's always the assumption that the that our indigenous communities will align with the left mm. um, you know just as a matter of survival but that's not always the case and mm. um you know fair enough a lot go conservative you know particularly our older people but there's a lot of uh a lot of people now going um, uh, quite radical, you know, as, about as far as you can go and, um, you know, getting uh, red pilled and all the rest online. So, yeah, I, um, there's not much out there about it, but I found your piece. And, yeah, I'd be interested if you could uh, tell us the story of, of what's going on there, you know, how it happened and what kind of rabbit holes people are falling through online that take them there. Yeah, I, I guess probably one of the things I should say is that, um, you know, misinformation and disinformation hasn't, is not a new thing for us mm. as Māori and it's not a new thing for Indigenous peoples. Um, and I'll get a little bit deeper into that in, the, in a moment, but even in terms of the mis and disinformation of recent years, I can think that of... Um, you know, before the interest of the last couple of years, since it got into white stream media, um, it was an issue in relation to uh, pest, different kinds of pest control methods and 5G and vaccinations have always been um, a space where there's some valid concerns, but also a lot of mis and disinformation floating around. And I think anywhere that you have... Um, you know, power gaps where people feel that the sense of agency is being taken away from them and there's a sense of distrust and the political sphere is, you know, perfect for that. That's where you're going to have people, you know, starting to speculate on 
um, what the real drivers are. And so, you know, in, in more recent years, as I mentioned, it's been 5G and, and vaccinations, Agenda 21, Agenda 2030 is another one that's popped up quite a bit. I actually came across, started to get a little bit deeper into this because of the work that we were doing with the restoration of our forest estate and some of the misinformation around the tools and the options that we wanted at our disposal. We hadn't made our mind up yet if we were going to use them, but we wanted them at our disposal. And, um, and some of the misinformation about those tools started to come out in a way that was like super violent. You know, it wasn't just, and that's the thing, it's not just um, mistrust, it's mistrust that's mixed up with this, you know, this radical element of, of being willing to, you know, cause harm as well. So we had, you know, some of our workers were experiencing death threats and, uh, and there were people who were vandalizing vehicles in ways that could have been deadly. Um, and so, yeah, we had to really get our head around, um, you know, where some of that misinformation was coming from. But even before that, you know, in my parents' day, there were different kind of um, profits and, you know, those kinds of things that, that managed to find purchase in our community. Um, in a few of our communities and I and I think you know one of the things that I've noticed is that when people really feel that everything is out of their control um, and also they feel like they're not on the, the inner circle or that they, they don't have any sense of agency about their lives these types of um, narratives where they suddenly have the truth revealed to them or they have some kind of inside information. It provides them with a sense of comfort that for some people and especially for our people, they rarely, if ever experience because we're always kept outside of the decision-making. We're always kept outside of the halls of power. And Not just so, the decision-making, but the narrative. Yeah. So if parts of the narrative are concealed or mm. they're obviously a lie then something you know just evolutionary terms you know you you'll that'll get filled in by something that niche will be filled um yeah. you know we'll make up our own story for that yeah yeah so wherever there's a vacuum and there's always information vacuums um between indigenous peoples in the state they only ever tell us what they think we need to know and, um, you know, we've, we've not had, <clears throat> excuse me, self-determination or full control over our lives or our destinies for a couple of hundred years now. And so it's not in our lived memory what that feels like. And, um, and, and our distrust of the state is very justified. And so in more recent times, you know, with the rise of QAnon and, and with it hitting you know, white stream media. As you po as you mentioned before, you're quite right. A lot of people assume that we are left, but actually, well, for us, for Māori, and certainly for you know, for my people, we're not left, and we're not right. And and the left has done you know significant damage to our people as well. What people would consider to be the liberal government, which is the government that we're under now, was also responsible for the largest. Um, modern time land grab 
you know, in our country, 10,000, um, 10 to 13,000 hectares of coastal estate taken in one swipe of a pen through the Foreshore and Seabed Act. And so that happened under a Labour government. Well, and, I guess it's like Malcolm X, Malcolm X said that, um, you know, the right side of politics is like a wolf and the left side is like a fox. And he prefers the wolf because you always know what the wolf is going to do. Yeah. And, and, he, and he says he's going to do it and then he does it. <laughs> exactly. And, yeah. and that's been said by our own people as well. They're like, well, at least the right stab you in the front. And so, you know, like that's a, one of the commons, common sayings that we hear over here as well. So it's not always, you know, but they can be brutal and not, I, they can be very brutal towards our people as well. And so, you know, that it, it's a, yeah, it's a common held fallacy that, that we are left leaning necessarily, or that we're also safer with the left than with the right. It's all relative and depends on the context. And neither of them are willing to acknowledge self-determination, our rights to self-determination mm. as well. And so all of that breeds a context for distrust. And so with the rise of QAnon and, you know, when we saw, well, the rise of the global right, really, and we saw the way in which um, propaganda and misinformation really strongly entered the political streams and then entered the political stream during our, our own Aotearoa or New Zealand um, elections, national elections. That was when um, I think a few, quite a few people were surprised that there were a number of Māori jumping on the QAnon bandwagon and really struggling to figure out, well, how is that? Because, you know, those who understood that QAnon was a white supremacist movement, were really trying to figure out how come there's so many Māori wearing, you know, even wearing similar hats, like Make New Zealand Great Again hats. And, and some of them wearing Make America Great Again and, and going on rallies with Trump signs. Um, and those signs were usually accompanied with anti- COVID lockdown signs and um, 5G and 1080 signs. And it was all kind of the same kind of um, group that was running across all of these themes. And it just kind of, it provided, um, you know, a sanctum for them, a political sanctum for them to come together. And so you saw some real, it, it was some strange bedfellows over that period where you saw some really far right extremists joining political forces with with Māori as well. And so, I mean, why I wrote The Rise of Māori Māga was, was there were a couple of reasons. One was to kind of explore and help to explain the dynamic there, which is, you know, maybe from an outsider's perspective, it doesn't make sense. But when you consider it from our perspective of how brutally we've been treated by both the left and the right, and the, and the vacuum of information, particularly in the COVID context and our historical experiences that our entire worlds have been flipped. And we've been told that, you know, no, everything that you think is not the case. There's only one God. You, you don't have your ancestors around you all the time. Your whole perception of the universe and your role in it gets flipped through colonization. 
So it's kind of rich for people to turn around and then say to us, oh, you know, you guys aren't living in reality. Well, our reality has been turned upside down so many times by colonizers who then turn around and try to appropriate our spiritual practices for their own benefits as well. And you're like, weren't you the same people who were just saying it's not true and now you guys want to appropriate it. And so, you know, our sense of the universe and our role in it is, um, is definitely something that can that, that's very you know able to be tampered with because of colonization and that's what we see playing out um in those spaces is that people can turn around and go they're not actually you know you shouldn't trust them our survival has depended upon us not trusting them so you don't have to work too hard to get us to not yeah. trust the state well we don't trust the state we don't trust the left and we don't trust the right why the hell are we trusting sort of random anonymous people online uh, as a source of our information? Um, what's going on there? Well, I think at least in part of it, it's that it's a fresh face, and this is what we've seen. You know, it's a it's a new it's a newer option, and that's what we've seen. Uh, you know, when when different cult figures or spiritual leaders pop up is that you know you, you get to a point where you just think okay it's just more of the same it's just another person left or right or whatever and and these people present themselves as a new option and it's a way out it's a way out of the cycle you know a way out of the um out of the treadmill that we feel that we've been on for a couple of hundred years. And the languaging that they use is very much around that. It's emancipatory language. And it's language that says, you know, they, they tend to try and give dates and then they'll give you all the excuses why that date didn't work out. But it's constantly dangling this, this carrot of imminent liberation in front of our people. You know, like something huge is going to happen on this date or we're finally going to reveal, you know, all of the corruption on this date. And so, you know, I think um, in, in these instances, it's the language of liberation that has been quite charming mm. for our people as it's, well, because um, they just feel like it's been so much of the same for so long. It's strange bedfellows, but I guess not so strange if you consider the, you know, disenfranchised you know, peoples, um, not people of color, not indigenous people, but people in the United States, say, you know, in the Midwest, you know, I've seen all their industries shut down and their way of life has been destroyed and um, and they're, they're just been doing it tough for a couple of generations mm. and been, been ignored. They're called flyover states, um, you know, because the important things are happening on the coast. <laughs> I guess yeah. the, most colonies have that in common. They're terrified of the interior, um, yeah. both of the old natives there and the new ones as well. So I guess there's a kind of uh, sense of disenfranchisement there and people are speaking from that. Um, and for some it's real and I guess for others it's imagined. Um, like, a, I don't know, for a lot of more privileged people, you know, they might see some of their... Um, their white privilege sort of uh, being challenged. They might see some of their male privilege being challenged and they'll feel like the world is ending, like they're losing something, being disenfranchised, having everything taken away. And I guess their language of loss there is something that weirdly um, we can relate to. 
Well, yes, and, and you know, it doesn't, um, in order to be a bedfellow in this scenario, you don't have to have completely aligned political beliefs. You just have to have a real aversion to the current authority. And we come with that inbuilt. And there's kind of like these three, you know, there's the trifecta of mistrust, you know, of, of and the QAnon narratives as well. But it also happens to be the trifecta of mistrust for indigenous for indigenous peoples, which which is government, science, and media. Okay. And and those three things, you know, if you can foster mistrust across those three fields, then you've got all of the ingredients for social discord and for a social movement. And because they're not going to be able to bring anything to you, they can't bring the science to prove you wrong. They don't have the social license to be able to pass bills or to, you know, to get the community behind them for the legitimate governance. And, mm. um, and the social narrative, of, of course, is, is really, you know, that's what the strongest social control really is the stories that we tell and the heroes we create. And so, um, you know, storytelling is a, vital and often um underappreciated part of of this issue of this kaupapa mm -hmm. as well is the strength of stories and so um in in western society especially since the enlightenment they're not really great it's <laughs> honestly in case you've noticed from what comes out of hollywood which is the same thing over and over again they're not really great at storytelling because since the enlightenment they've become you know they they have really sanctified science and it's race you know science it's, is it's all the it's all the hero's journey it's focusing on the fabulous individual yeah. all the rest oh look i tell you strange bedfellows indeed but i guess um you know in the west um and in all their, its colonies the settlers have been losing faith in their institutions for about the last two decades um uh, whereas we have never had faith faith in their institutions so you know um if you're coming from a cultural group or you're people of color uh, or you're indigenous you know your people have been experimented on in living memory and you yes. might have been involved in those experiments yourself it's 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 there you know um yeah they, and basically, you know, if there's a bad batch of medication, guess who's going to get it? You know, if someone leaves the fridge off, then that they don't want to lose that money, so they'll send it out to the blackfellas. You know, <laughs> um, yeah. you know, so there's we already have that. Um, so I guess you know, um, we're finally closing the gap, and um, and reconciliation is happening. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not not with the people that they thought it'd be happening with. It's um it's happening with the people you know within their own uh, civilization who really now just want to see it burn. Yeah, um, you know because I think particularly for indigenous peoples, we've been undergoing colonial oppression for so long that. You know, even to just burn it down is is it's something, it's something final. They want a sense of finality about the colonial experience. And so, you know, they can very much empathize, we can very much empathize and sympathize with um, the idea of at least burning the system down, cleaning out the swamp. You know, there's a there's a 
charming kind of finality to it and that there will be a new age of whatever it's going to be and so um yeah but you, you also touched on another really important point that was the other driver for me writing the rise of maori maga which was um that you know th there's a lot of the ways in which we discuss this especially when we're dealing with our own families members who have gone down the rabbit hole is often you know, it's often in a really derogatory sense. And it was a, a real white discussion too that I could see playing out, which is, you know, it, it really lumped us a lot with QAnon. It lumped us also with the Midwest. It was, it used this really kind of ridiculing language and calling people dumb and calling people, you know, um, crazy for not, you know, for not believing in the government or science or media and there's somehow all of a sudden this given that we were supposed to be placing our trust in government science and media and there was also you know a real lack of um discussion around the you know the culpability of government because we're not yeah you know, i don't even like to use the word vulnerable when we talk about misinformation we've been vulnerability is built into we're actually very strong as you know we've the longest standing history of sustainable practice around the world all indigenous peoples we've survived genocide which is what we've survived you know incredible like pan we've survived multiple pandemics and we're still here um and so you know vulnerability is built it's not natural to us it's built into us through a process of colonization and that's the same for misinformation and so while governments are rolling out policies and discussions around how they're going to deal with misinformation that can lend towards censorship and also can sometimes lend towards you know um, elitism and paternalism it was really to try and remind people that there's good reason why we don't have this trust and we're talking about a Māori context anyway, there's good reason why that distrust exists. And, and it doesn't work to just ridicule people for a practice that has ensured our survival for the past 200 years. You know, we've had to challenge government on absolutely everything in order to survive. And so, yeah, that was really the other driver behind writing The Rise of Māori Māga. Well, you know, so um, but there's something about um, the people who exploit that that mistrust. You know, mm. I see I see you you talk about Steve Bannon, you know, mm. and and that's not you know a downtrodden person mm. there, and and he's quite um, you know blatantly and 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 pretty horribly exploiting you know the suffering of a lot of people and the and the righteous mistrust of a lot of people, um, you know, and designing things online that are going to do that um you know so yeah thoughts on that but also what are the kinds of things that are red pilling people or black pilling people or whatever kind of pilling what kind of uh, rabbit holes are they going down on youtube um who are the people who are the people that maori are watching and listening to i mean i know stefan molyneux went to to the new zealand tour <laughs> you know i don't know if a lot of maori are watching him um 
you know, etc. Yeah, who are, who are the big figures in there, and and what's their story? Um. So you know, the first part of of what you raised there is, you know, you're quite right. The ones who are actually in the driving seat around the mis and disinformation um, campaigns are privileged white people. They're not the downtrodden, um, but they do also understand how social discord plays out in favor of the dominant groups in society. And so if you do get to a point where you burn things down, at that point, who are the ones that are most likely to be arrested? Who are the ones that are most likely to be brutalized? Who are the ones that are most likely to be shot? It's not, it's not the white folks who, who are, you know, behind this, the puppeteers who are, you know, creating a lot of this and, and then putting it out through their um, 8chan and, and 4chan and 8kun channels. Um, and, you know, low-key spreading it also through political speeches and through publications as well and um, they have their um, public figures as well, who they get to, to propagate a lot of this misinformation. But those groups, they understand really well, and it's again, also not a new colonial practice that, they, that you enlist people, the downtrodden, or you, would, you enlist marginalized groups to do your work for you. And you take advantage and you exploit you know, the weaknesses that even your own people have been responsible for building in because they have no conscience, you know. So they're quite happy to exploit that and understand that we will be in the firing line of that. And they've quoted it, you know, they've said as much. Steve Bannon has said as much. Donald Trump, Donald Trump has said as much that, you know, you burn everything down and, and it's going to be white supremacists who will come out on top again, who will be the first to be able to mobilise um, politically mobilized to fill the vacuums of power that are created through a revolution. So, um, so yeah, that's, you know, they, they don't have any qualms doing that. Um, and there are always going to be people, even our own brothers and sisters, who are willing to participate in those spaces for their own benefit as well. Here's a theory for you. Um, um, settler males um, have not got much experience in uh, revolutional resistance or, mm -hmm. or, or oppression for that matter um, mm -hmm. is that why they're kind of so useless and need to <laughs> need to leverage <laughs> the experience and suffering of, of marginalized people um, like I'm thinking of the storming of the capital capital in um in the u.s yeah. <laughs> um yeah. and i'm thinking well <laughs> who was it on the front lines there it wasn't settler males it was all women it was women getting shot you know um they you know they're getting in they're organized they're stealing nancy pelosi's laptop they're like um you know <laughs> they're building gallows out the front to hang mike pence and they nearly got it done too <laughs> it was all women they were the first in and they actually got busy and they knew what they were doing. <laughs> but yeah. the men, they're wearing funny hats, they're taking selfies, they're rubbing poo on the walls. <laughs> they don't really know, didn't know what they were doing. Uh, anyway. Well, I mean, here's my thing, though, is that I'm like, okay, I get why our people, I get why our people 
um, are not, you know, are distrustful and are, you know, ripe targets for mis and disinformation. I get because, you know, we've, we have the distrust inbuilt as well. And so I get that. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I'm like, you know, no, no, when you're talking about, when you're using, you know, I, I'm not down with mental health insults anyway, you know, in any time. But when, you know, don't call people crazy, but definitely don't call people dumb when you're mm. talking about Māori because this mm. has been our survival instinct mm. for a long time to not trust. But my thing is like, how do you have so many hundred years of privilege of access to institutions, of being on the inside, of privileged education models, and you still come out being able to believe, like for me, I'm like, I, I, that's when I think you can start to insult people's intelligence. Because you guys have had all the cards and there's still like a significant number of you who, who want to believe in mis and disinformation <laughs> as well. That, oh. I'm like, yeah, I don't, yeah. That's yeah, a yeah, message. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> I tell you, um, yeah, I was. I heard about that Stefan Molyneux when he went to New Zealand, that there was some kind of curse, like uh, Maori had, had, had let him know online that you know if he tried to come into New Zealand, that the you know the ancestors wouldn't let him through or something. And then it, was some a, kind it was of a bit stunt. of a joke. It was it was a little bit of a joke. So we've got a carved, a carved doorway and panel that you have to pass through in Auckland customs when you come through Auckland International Airport. And, and it, was a, it was like a plea to the ancestors, really. <laughs> when these people walk through that, um, under that pare and through the tomokanga, which is the, the gateway, it was like, please don't let them through. We're just pouring everything into you, Tomokanga. Please don't. Can you please put up some kind of force field and don't let them through? As it as it turns out, they got through, but they had to turn around and leave very soon after that without giving any public, um, without any kind of public events because their oh. events got shut down. So, oh, oh so well, there we go. One way or another, it worked. So we were really well, they still got to get their picture taken in front of the gate going blah we got through <laughs> yeah they got through yeah. and they didn't get very far we would call it old um fascist ken and barbie the fascist ken and barbie show is what <laughs> it was titled by Ooh. us when they were here but yeah they got shut down and had to turn around and um and leave so mm. We're very thankful for that mm. well look, yeah but um, the other figure um really <clears throat> that's that's that especially the political figure that really banked off this is Billy Tekahika. Um, and he's an interesting fellow. He was a not very well-known blues musician, but his father, Billy Tekahika Sr., was a very well-known blues musician. And, and um, Billy TK, which is what he came to be known as, Junior, um, he kind of had this, political awakening during the COVID lockdown and started to do a lot of these um, YouTube clips really theorizing on the idea of Agenda 2030, uh, 2030 and Agenda 21 um, and 
and trying to create connections between that and COVID and the lockdown and what's really going on. And so they know, the, the UN, um, the UN agendas. Yeah, so Agenda 21 is really just a, a commitment, a multilateral commitment from different governments to work together in pursuit of the sustainable development goals. Mm. And here's the thing, this is one of the things that drives me a little bit nuts. You don't actually have to dig that deep to find real causes for concern, you yeah. know, like oil and gas extraction, like it is real, you know, state run pedophile you know the theft of our children and state-centered abuse within um within the state care or state theft child theft system like that's real yeah we have the know? actual ones we have the actual, the actual ones <laughs> we experience them but um yeah. i don't know maybe it is it escapism or something because what we don't have is a narrative with that we have a narrative of complaint um but we don't have good story yet that explains why you know, I mean, the best we can come up with is settlers are terrible. <laughs> you know what I mean? But we don't have a good narrative for it. So is it is there something attractive about the idea that there's, you know, a really high level group of Satanists in the world who like to drink babies' blood and, um, you know, that they want to control us and, and kill us all and all that sort of thing? I think, and again, this kind of comes back to a little bit of the complicity of the state in this the narrative is colonization mm. like so the way in which you know sexual assault of our people and the deep trauma that that visits upon people and and the way in which that functions to have you not believe in yourself not believe in your people the deep the multi-generational harm that's created out of sexual out of sexual trauma where the victims become the perpetrators so you mm. can really easily just sit back and watch a community dissemble itself from you know just one generation of sexual trauma and interference mm. um, and then within two to three generations it's starting to dissemble itself because it's perpetuating the problem itself and so that's not new you know you know they, these were some of the first acts that Columbus were doing James Cook was mm. you know doing it on, on on his travels and so um the use of and essentially colonization is an act of war mm. right it's a it's a violent act of war mm. that plays out over multiple generations oh, look, with the theft of children you know and yeah all the boys homes and and, and stuff like yes. that with you know that that stuff was going on yes. there were really and, and high level pedophile rings yeah going on and there were brochures. I don't know if you had the brochures here, but there were brochures on how to, you know, catch and train a sex slave back in the early days of colonization. Yeah. You know, like exactly yeah. and, how, like you know, how to tie the knots and, you know, the entire thing, you know, it was pretty organized and out in the open. It's, um, yeah. you know, and, and then, but basically we get this denialism going on about it. Like, you know, stop whinging. It wasn't that bad. Don't use the word genocide. That was like, uh, that's really you know, inappropriate and you're exaggerating things a bit. And we keep getting told that story is not true, but we're trying to deal with the trauma as well. And then we get this beautiful live action role play from the States, you know, and we get to LARP through our trauma, I guess, in a way by, um, you know, joining in this sort of, you know, global thing and, and putting, putting on funny and hats. And the, exactly. This is the thing is that, you know, we're constantly gaslighted. 
Indigenous peoples are constantly gaslighted about our reality. Mm. Where, you know, we live under this, well, the, the overbearing gaslight that our governments are legitimate when they've been set up through war crimes. You know, the setting up of the invasion of our countries and the setting of these governments carried out today would, would be something that would, well, you'd wind up like Saddam Hussein being tried in The Hague and then sentenced to death and it would be a war crime. Mm. But because of, you know, and, and this is when you start to come back to why misinformation and conspiracy theories like Agenda 2030 find so much purchase is that United Nations is a collection of colonial governments who have, you know, exercised that, or that privilege and those relationships within the Security Council to maintain a system of colonial privilege on a global scale. And we have had issues with the rollout of, you know, Agenda 2030 and, and some of the sustainable development goals that have really relied upon, for instance, you know, the electrification of vehicles that push a lot of the burdens down into the global south and, you know, for and green privilege as well for the global north. The fact that, you know, the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, mm -hmm. um, you know, these these institutions have been set up through systems, through colonial systems of extraction out of Indigenous territories. And these systems are still in play today that create these channels of wealth and privilege. And we are constantly being gaslit that it's either that it's acceptable. And this is some of the things I talk about in my book around the colonial fictions, that it's beneficial. Mm. that it's in our best interests, that it's not actually an injustice, that it's not actually illegal. And so, you know, when they're saying, when, when they're talking to us around, oh no, this is the truth, this is reality. Yeah. Well, we've, we've been gaslit <clears throat> about what is actual reality for a couple of hundred years yeah. now. Well, I, I think our radicalization happens a lot quicker online. Um, yeah. I mean, if you, if you track... Uh, the process by which usually a settler will be radicalized. You know, they'll start out listening to, you know, Stefan Molyneux and he's talking about his family. You know, he's a nice guy. He's talking in a gentle voice. He's talking about relationships. He's, and then he goes, oh, did you know the dollar's not backed by gold? And then he draws you a few pictures and then you're like, oh, I'm learning economics here. And, you know, it's all lovely. And then next minute, <laughs> he'll go, it's... um. Yeah, then, then all of a sudden it's Bigfoot videos and, I mean, you you threw the rabbit hole. Um, yeah. But I guess, you know, for in, Indigenous people, I mean, where you are, you know, and you're already living all this stuff, you just, like, click on one video that says, hey, Hillary Clinton's eating Haitian kids. And you go, yeah, bro, that's probably true. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Just like, you know, the <laughs> radicalization just doesn't need... You know, you know, you don't have hundreds of hours. Yeah. Who's got time for that anyway? You know, yeah, you can do it in one video. <laughs> exactly. And so you know, we don't we don't have to be coaxed too far to believe in these things. And and they take, you know, these kernels of truth and and they just ask you to extend just a little bit further, mm. you know, upon and so you know, it doesn't seem like an that that step might seem unreasonable to yeah. some, but it certainly is not unreasonable to um, 
to many of us as well. And so, and, and yeah, like you said, before you know it, you're in the rabbit hole. And once you're in the rabbit hole, it's difficult to get out because oh, yeah. you're surrounded by others who are in the rabbit hole, who are, who are intra and inter affirming. So it's like, don't trust them if they're outside of the rabbit hole. Mm. Everybody else has an agenda or they just don't get it or, you know, so, you know, you, you tend to find yourself being reaffirmed and you're not going to come out of the rabbit hole if every time you start to peep your head out, people are standing there calling you dumb, calling you crazy and insulting you and yeah. making you feel stupid. So, you know, that's another, that that's why it's so important for us to, try and you know the people who have been coaxed in many of them are kind of have their moments from time to time where they're like really and and I think if you leave the door open to have some reasonable conversations with them um some of them I've seen them I've had my mm. own family come out mm. of the rabbit hole mm. and they've said to me you know like a part of our a part of our reluctance to come out was that when people were insulting us we just felt like digging our heels in Mm. and and you know especially when all the only thing that you're offering is trust as well that's the only thing like if you don't have any other reason if you don't have if you don't have any other explanation you're just saying yeah but you should trust the government that that's not going to bring people out of the rabbit hole either so you know like i said i think you know there's a there's a complicitness of the government in this and that they've suppressed really important conversations naturally they've suppressed it because it undermines their power base about how colonialism works mm. about the way in which colonialism does include sexual abuse and trauma and it does require them to contain us in prisons and so they are going to hyper police us and so a lot of those discussions are suppressed within colonial um, governance and media as well mm. so a lot do of them see... don't get funded to be explored through science and research mm. and so yeah it's that information gap that vacuum that gets filled with speculation yeah. and if the people in the rabbit hole pop their head up and all you've got to say to them is you should trust, trust the government they're going to go oh yeah i'm going to go back to where at least i felt like i had some kind of insight yeah even though it's wrong yeah, come here, little rabbit. Get in the pot. Yeah. Don't, don't listen to the story. <laughs> yeah. Oh my goodness. Well, um, do, do you think um, it's 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 damaging um, for our communities' engagement with the alt right uh, disinformation, or I mean, is it just more of the same? Well, we're being lied to, you know again and manipulated again for somebody else's agenda that's not our agenda that's not our mm. you know um well-being they don't have they don't genuinely have our well-being they want to utilize us for their own reasons and so um so yeah there is harm in that space and there's harm because you know it genuinely does when you're talking from that space of fear and distrust that breaks down relationships mm. and so there's real harm in the breakdown of relationships i've seen um marriages falter on this where one person's in the rabbit hole and the other isn't um and they've broken up i've seen uh especially in the COVID context 
children moving out of home and being homeless during COVID because they couldn't take living at home anymore because they, one of their parents had gone down the rabbit hole. And, um, and so it really does strain relationships. So there's harm in that as well. Um, but the other part of it is, is that uh, we have our own ways of validating truth. And, um, and I think, you know, for us, one of the, one of the good news aspects of this whole thing is that we can come back into our communities and have these discussions around how are we going to validate truth within our community and how are we going to take a stand as a people because one of the beauties of for us being Māori and, and for Indigenous peoples is that we have this wonderful collective identity you know we're not as individualistic as what the western world is and so if we can come together as a community and go all right where does this where does this discussion around pandemics fit within our 10,000 year story 3,000 year story whatever you know the story is that we're looking at where does that sit in relation to us and what does that mean for our survival and what's our you know what's our stand going to be and so um you know for us in Māori we had the wānanga we had the system of wānanga where we would validate our truth based upon our science and also based upon our cultural narratives that were embedded in the carvings and the weavings of our ancestral houses and in there was, you know, this codified language from our ancestors around how we overcome tribulation. And so we draw from all of that to make a, a discussion, you know, to create a framework for how we validate a new piece of information. And I think when you do that, it's a much stronger space to come from than just believing, blindly believing in this state. Well, I imagine it would be a difficult thing to get a wrong story past the Murray there that would act as a pretty good filter. <laughs> That's imagine. right. Yeah. And like I said, it all comes back to, you know, the strength of stories is, is really underrated in this whole issue. And the Marae is that's a, that's our repository of stories it's a it's a multi multi-generational story that goes back even before the canoes came to our ancestors who were here before the canoes as well and some of their stories about our ancestors that lived in the reefs that lived in the rivers that were born out of the soil so we have their stories and we have the story of our canoe ancestors as well that came from across the Pacific and everything that they've experienced over that time and everything that we've survived at the hands of colonizers and we search that together to go all right so where are we in this universe and where does that place us in response to this particular challenge that's in front of us and how can we take a stand or a position that makes sense in light of all of that that we can stand by as being ours and claim as ours and um and so yeah that's that's the perfect place because that's our storytelling space and it's been the storytelling space of all of our ancestors um and that's our truth validation space nice well that's beautiful <laughs> yeah i just um and i feel like you've you've done the 
the message really well and you've said it in a lot of different ways and you know and kind of as we progressed it it sort of got even more powerful as you went along um yeah really solid messages and thanks so much is there anything else you want to add um at the end i mean just you know i guess that um you know there's our there's our village here in Farikahika and Kairafati and, and we have a context, a village context for it here. And we have a village of Māori in a national sense for us to have that discussion as well. But there's also the global indigenous village, um, village as well. And so, you know, I think um, spaces that are created like what you have right now, you know, with your podcast and, um, and interviews that you do, are a really vital space for us to be exploring this because like I said it's it's in the absence of these discussions that speculation grows and that people can rely upon the wrong voice and so um, you know just the importance of us to come together as Indigenous brothers and sisters open these discussions up really unveil that true narrative of colonization and and how much it explain it really does explain what we've been going through um and and the power that that will have for all of our our global indigenous village and our brothers and sisters um in fighting against misinformation who needs pizza gate when you got colony gate you know it we already got it <laughs> we're good <laughs> you know oh, well, thank you so much tina it was a beautiful yarn I'm not sure